today's Bible reading is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 to 11, on page 1154. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. I realised that um, Colin stole my headset, and it'd be really nice to have it back, Colin. I'll swap you. Thank you very much. Are we in business? In business. That's good. Let's get into it. Now, foundations matter. Yes? When you think about life, uh, I was thinking about this sermon yesterday as I uh, painted one of the rooms in our house. Foundations matter when it comes to painting. Uh, when we moved into our new place uh, up at Seaview Downs, there was one wall that was brick red. Uh, you've got to get the undercoat on, don't you? The foundation actually matters. Uh, otherwise, you have a, uh, a wall that just looks like complete rubbish. Or building. Have you ever built something? When you build, you need it. A strong foundation and maybe you've bought a house and it has a foundation uh, that you can do this what's that say it says expensive doesn't it what does this say it says catastrophic that's a uh, an apartment built in China uh, the foundation just wasn't up for the task the whole thing just fell over if you get it wrong there are some really big consequences foundations in learning any teacher will tell you that you need to have the basic building blocks in place, don't you? I had a maths teacher in my early uh, high school, and he and I, he was probably a great teacher, and I'm aware that uh, the fault was probably with me, but he and I just didn't get on. Uh, he spoke a language I didn't understand. That language was called maths. It meant I got later on in my maths career, uh, and there were big gaps in the foundation of what should just be basic learning. That has consequences, doesn't it? Foundations matter. Foundations matter. But I'd like to suggest beyond painting, building, maths, 
we all build on a foundation for life. Whether consciously or unconsciously, we build our life on something. And when we get it wrong, it can have humongous effects. We're going to explore this whole idea of uh, foundations this morning. Uh, We've got three headings. They all start with F. Yay! Foundations, facts, and freedom. Let's dive in to foundations. When I talk about foundations, let me unpack this a little bit. What does it mean to actually build life on a foundation? Well, it means that we all have questions about a few key things. And it really doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't really matter how old we are. Uh, there are things that we need answers to if we're going to actually live a life uh, within uh, our world. Okay, One of those is a question of security. How do I know that, that I can be safe? Can I be safe? How do I know that I can have a life that will actually stand amid all the turmoil that this world will throw at us? That's one question. What's another question? A question of significance. How can I have a life that has meaning? How can I have a life that has value? None of us want to live a life that you get to the end and you go, well, that was a complete waste of time and you know, the world is no better off for me actually having existed. We want to have a life of significance. We also need a life that has shape. When I say shape, uh, I chose shape because it started with S and I had two other S's. But let me explain this. It has a life that actually has direction and purpose, that actually has a way of making decisions, that you can work out what it means to make a good choice versus a bad choice, that you can actually have a frame that actually that question makes sense. So security, significance and shape. We could go further, but I've only got, you know, about 45, 50 minutes for this sermon, so I'll press on with these. What are some of the answers? What are some of the answers? I want to just generally introduce you to some of the answers that, uh, that our society has given to these questions. There's a kind of a modern answer, can I say? A modern answer that sees you can find your own answers for any of those questions in any place that you want, but you need to do it for yourself. This is very much in our society at the moment, isn't it? You need to discover your purpose and meaning. You need to discover your significance. It's all about us. And there's no one outside you that can tell you what that is. You need to find it for yourself. The salvation that is promised through answering those questions yourself is the good life, whatever that actually looks like to you. But it all depends ultimately on your performance, on your achievements, and it's never secure. Now, some of you will know who this lady is. Yes, this is Madonna, in case you're not up with 80s pop stars. Um, She kind of went on a bit beyond the 80s as well. But she was interviewed for Vogue magazine. Now, you may not know much about Madonna, but one thing you will know about her is that In terms of pop music, she is phenomenally successful, yes? Okay, she is one of the icons of that kind of late 20th century, early 21st century world. This is what she said 
when Vogue magazine interviewed her. She said, I have an iron will and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being and then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I have to still prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. Madonna, you think by the world standards has answered those questions. Well, listen to the words she says again. My struggle has never ended. If we build our foundation upon the modern's answer of finding our own adventure, finding our own meaning, our own purpose, our own shape, it never, it never ends. George Michael, I'm showing my roots here, 1980s pop music, uh, he wrote in a song called Waiting, he said, you look for your dreams in heaven, but what the hell are you supposed to do when they come true? You strive, you strive, you strive. You get there and you realise just how empty it is. So you keep striving. That's what Madonna said. That's what George Michael said. That's what our world is finding. Never resting. So if that's modern, and maybe we can see that that's not great. What's the traditional answers to this? And when I think of tradition, when we're talking about tradition, we could talk about traditional family culture. We could talk about religion like Christianity, but other religions as well. And often what that's all about, finding that foundation, is by living up to other people's expectations of you. Maybe you've grown up in a culture like this where the family honour is really, really, really strong. Uh, one of my family has just started at medical school uh, in, in, in Adelaide and he was talking about uh, some of the students from different backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds. And he said, everyone in the family is a doctor. And so if these people weren't in med school, they'd, they'd just be a failure. And I've known people, maybe you've felt like that. You've got to live up to expectations. And maybe if you think about not those kind of expectations but religious expectations maybe it's all about you know keeping the rules doing the right thing but at the end of it whether it's traditional or modern it's still all about your achievement isn't it how do you know that you're good enough how do you know that you've arrived even christianity dressed up can i say as religion can i say there's another option here uh but what it will do is it will crush you. You can never know that you've arrived. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives us a third way. Please note that I'm contrasting the modern and the traditional with what I see the Bible teaches as true biblical Christianity. Paul gives us a third way, and I've left my Bible down on the seat. So I'm going to walk down here. It's a good thing I'm mic'd. Um, you can find it uh, in 1 Corinthians 15. Have a Bible open. 
But verses 1 and 2, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. Paul here is saying, I gave you a foundation. I gave you a foundation that was apart from the traditional foundations of Paul's era and culture. I gave you another foundation. I gave you a gospel. Now, gospel is just a, it's a secular word that was just being used at the time. Uh, Paul didn't pick a religious term. He used a word that just meant a newsflash, an announcement. You can see it, um, this is Augustus. I reckon they, um, they put this, this statue in the foyer, pointing the way to the toilet. Uh, it's over there, uh, Augustus is saying. It's actually over there or over there. But anyway, uh, Augustus, one of the greatest emperors that Rome had, uh, they found a, a public works building in Asia Minor up in Turkey, uh, and they found an inscription in there dated about 6 BC. We read this. Whereas the providence, that's divinity, which has regulated our whole existence, has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving to us Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as saviour, has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. The birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel concerning him. This is like a news flash engraved in a wall in this building that speaks of the gospel, the good news of Augustus. But here we have Paul preaching not the good news of Augustus, but the good news of Jesus. It's news. It's not self-help. It's news, it's not advice, it's telling you what has happened, not what you must do. Can you see how this is the third way? The modern self is told, find the answers yourself, it's all about what you find. The more traditional self is told, you've got to live up to these expectations. Do, do. What is the gospel? Done. It's news. This is the foundation, Paul says, you can build life upon. Now, how do you know what foundation you're on? Well, this morning you may be someone who says, well, I'm not a Christian. Well, you can be pretty sure you're building on one of those other two. But for those of us who are Christians, it's easy for us to default to those other ones, even though we know in our heads the right answer. I find myself doing it all the time. And this is why taking up your cross and following Jesus is not a once-off thing. It's a daily thing. It's a commitment to put him at the center each and every day. How do we know? How do we make that diagnosis? Well, let me give you some questions. When you are under pressure in life, when things aren't going well, where do you go to to reassure yourself? To what do you go back to? You might say you go back to your achievements in family or your achievements in academia and work 
or your achievements in relationships and friendship? Where do you go when you're under pressure? What do you dream of? When you have those few unoccupied moments and you start building your little kingdom, what are you going to? What are you building? What are you planning? That may show you something. How do you determine how you spend your key resources? What determines how you spend your time and your money? Those two key resources, time and money, what determines what gets into your diary and what doesn't, what you'll spend money on and what you won't? What lies behind those questions? What gives you the answers to big questions of life, of security? I know my life is safe. I know I have security because dot, dot, dot. I know my life has significance. I know my life has a purpose, a direction, a shape because. Well, Paul says the one foundation that you can truly build on is the gospel. So let's unpack the gospel and its facts. Verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of the first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Kephas, that's Peter, uh, and then to the twelve. And then after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Paul gives us the facts. Christ died. Christ was buried by Joseph of Arimathea in a tomb in a garden. On the third day, Christ was raised to life and he appeared to witnesses. Witnesses who are named and numbered. Why does Paul tell us that most of those 500 are still alive? He's telling the Corinthians that they can get on a boat and travel to Jerusalem and they can find them and ask. He's naming names. He's telling them, you can, you can check this out. This is historical fact. Christ died, was buried, was raised and appeared to witnesses. These two events, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ lie at the heart of that gospel, that foundation that Paul gives us. Now, Christianity is essentially historical. If Christianity is just a nice idea, it doesn't work. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, we'll look at it next week, but Paul actually tells us that if Jesus didn't rise, if this is just a nice idea, not historical fact, you're all wasting your time. You'd be better off having a coffee or seeing a movie or walking on the beach or doing those jobs around the house. You're all wasting your time calling yourself Christians because Christianity is 100% historical or it's nothing. So let's explore that. How do we know? Maybe this morning you're here and you're going, Actually, I'm not convinced, you know. How do you know? Well, this guy's Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian, okay, that wrote about the history of first century Palestine. And this is what Josephus wrote about Jesus. 
Josephus is not a Christian. He said at this time there appeared Jesus, a wise man. He was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of people who received the truth with pleasure. And he gained a following both amongst many Jews and amongst many of Greek origin. He was perhaps the Messiah Christ. And when Pilate, because of an accusation made by leading men among us, condemned him to the cross, those who loved him previously did not cease to do so. For they reported that he was appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. And up to this very day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not died out. That's Josephus. He's a non-Christian witness to the resurrection. A guy by the name of Dr. Pinchas Lapidis. He's a Jewish historian, again, not a Christian of our modern era. He said, how is it possible for that his disciples, who by no means excelled in intelligence, eloquence or strength of faith, were able to begin their victorious march of conversion? He says, in a purely logical analysis, the resurrection of Jesus is the lesser of two evils for all those who seek a rational explanation of the worldwide consequences of that Easter faith. This is a non-Christian looking at the history of what happened that first Easter. And he said, it's the most rational, most logical conclusion. He says, thus, in my opinion, the resurrection belongs to the category of the truly real. This man was not a believer. But how do you know? Well, ultimately, can I suggest that uh, the proof of the pudding is in the eating? Yes. Courage of conviction. So how many disciples were there? There were 12. Okay, let me introduce you to them. Okay, we have John. Okay, we have James, John's brother, son of Zebedee. We have Peter, otherwise known as Simon, otherwise known as Kephas, the one named in there. Okay, we have Andrew, Peter's brother. Okay, let's keep going. We have Matthew. Okay, we have Nathaniel. Okay, not to, if you're maybe expecting a baby, you've got some names here, the options. Okay, Thomas is there, you know, the doubting guy. I'm not going to believe unless I can put my hands in Jesus' side. Judas, probably don't go for that one for your baby name. He kind of dropped out of the picture and was replaced in Acts 1 by Matthias. Okay, um, Matthias and then Thaddeus. I, I'd like to see a Thaddeus as a member of Trinity Bay. So parents, take note. Um, another James, James, son of Alphaeus. Uh, is there uh, another Simon uh, and Philip. Okay, so these guys were the eyewitnesses. They were with Jesus from the beginning. If anyone knows the thing is a fake, these guys do. Yes? Okay. So how did they die? Well, John died of old age. Old age on a prison island in the middle of the Mediterranean. Okay. Then we have James, son of Zebedee, who was beheaded by Herod. Okay. Then we have Peter crucified, uh, church tradition tells us, in Rome in the 60s AD under Nero, upside down. Okay. Andrew, beaten, then crucified. Okay. Matthew, he got it nice, stabbed with a sword. Okay. Nathaniel, he was flayed with whips. Okay. Thomas, speared. Matthias, stoned, then beheaded. Thaddeus, crucified. James, son of Alphaeus, stoned, then clubbed. Simon, well, he got old age. Okay, lucky guy. Uh, and Philip, 
He was crucified. Okay. They knew it was true or not. Does their life testify and their death testify to their convictions? I believe there's enough evidence, both in history and in scripture, to tell us these are facts. So what then do they mean? They are facts that Paul tells us happened according to scripture. Not just prediction, but interpretation. Verse 3, Paul tells us that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That Jesus died in our place, bearing the consequence of our sin. He was probably thinking of verses like this from Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The prophecy about the servant of the Lord that Jesus claimed as his own. The Old Testament spoke of the need for a sacrifice, the one who would take away sin. Jesus Christ died for sin according to the scriptures. We're not really happy with this word though are we in the modern lingo sin we kind of think of breaking these kind of arbitrary rules well the bible has lots of different angles on sin can i say and you can think about sin in this way probably more helpfully in relation to our idea of foundations god created us he designed us to be in relationship with him as our creator and he designed us he made us to find the answers to those questions shape significance and security in our relationship with him that's what he designed us for that's what he intended for his creation for us and our sin is rejecting god and the answers that he gives us to those questions and seeking them in other things the bible talks about it in romans 1 as rejecting the truth of god for a lie and worshiping the created things rather than the creator we reject god as our foundation and jesus christ the scriptures tell us died to ex- to take the penalty for our rejection Jeremiah says it using a slightly different language. God accuses Israel. He says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, the only place you're going to get a good drink. And they've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. To change it to the foundation metaphor. What Jeremiah could have been said, these people have walked away from the only sure foundation for life now and in eternity. And they've built on sand. They've built on mud. They've built on something that can never, ever take the weight. But Jesus died for sin, for our sin, so that we could be forgiven. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. And the scriptures speak of the eternal king. Let me give you 2 Samuel 7, the promise to David. 
The Lord says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestor, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. The Old Testament spoke of an eternal king over God's kingdom. It spoke of a king whose reign would never end. Jesus Christ raised from the dead on the third day according to scripture. These facts have implications and they are implications for everyone because Christ is not king over a corner of the world. He's a king over the entire world. Abraham Kuyper said there is not one square inch over creation where Jesus does not declare mine. Jesus declares mine. There's no neutral ground. We can't defer making a decision. These facts have implications and the implications are staggering. What are you building on? What are you building on? Is your foundation taking the weight? Will it take it in the future? Moving to our third point. I'm going to unpack this with Paul as a little bit of an illustration of what it looks like for someone to have the gospel as foundation. So hang in there. We're getting to the end. What does it mean in terms of security? Well, no matter how easy your life might be, And I know for pretty much all of us, life's not easy. It has its ups, has its good moments, but it has its tough moments as well. There is something that comes to each and every one of us that will rock our foundation to the core. And that's death. Some of us know that personally, as we have seen death intimately. Some of us probably not that far off our own. How does the Apostle Paul, with his gospel foundation, face death? Well, we have one of the last pieces of communication that he made in the letter of 2 Timothy. And he writes this to his friend, his protege, his disciple. He says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul looks at his death with confidence. He looks at judgment with delight. There awaits for me the crown of righteousness, which the righteous judge, not the merciful judge, not the forgiving judge, But the judge who is righteous, the judge that does right, will give him the crown of righteousness. But not based on his own achievements. Based on the very real righteousness. On that verdict of not guilty that came to him and to all whose faith is in Christ. Paul looks forward knowing that he is perfectly secure. But it's not just a future thing. It's a present thing. It's a present thing. That future security works itself out in the present. No matter what we face, we know that the big enemies have been defeated. 
No matter what stands against us, no matter what criticisms we cop, we will never cop the criticism from the Father. We will never have the Son say, I never knew you. That gives us a security in the here and the now to face the ups and downs of this world. Let's go on. What about significance? The life that has meaning and value. Now, if you listen carefully, you'd think that Paul had a few challenges on this area. Okay, well, how does he describe himself? Verse 8, he describes himself as one abnormally born. Now, a little bit of an adult content warning here. Um, What this is, he describes himself either as a miscarriage or an abortion. It's a revolting word that he uses. And this is Paul's appraisal of himself. And then he goes on, he says, I'm the least of apostles. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. He's got issues with significance, surely. Yes, but no, no. Because he knows that regardless of what he has done, his persecution of the church, his murder of Christians, Paul judiciously murdered Christians. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, whereas he was executed, Paul's there giving the thumbs up. He knows that he doesn't stand by his own performance. He knows that the gospel gives us a foundation that is built on grace. And because of that, it actually lets him face who he really is and face what he's really done. Someone who builds on performance can't face their sin. Now, I'm embarrassed to say that up until this morning, I was an avid supporter of the Australian cricket team. For those who don't know, there seems to be a team-wide conspiracy to tamper with balls in South Africa. I don't know if you heard the attempts at apologies and repentance Cam Bancroft was upset that he did something so stupid because there were so many cameras around watching. What I didn't hear from Cam Bancroft, he might have said it, was, I'm sorry I broke the rules. What I did hear was, I'm sorry I got caught. Steve Smith doesn't think it has any implications uh, for his captaincy uh, because, you know, I don't know why because, (laughs) I think... If I was the head of the, the Australian cricket board, I'd be standing him down now. And I'd be forfeiting that test match now. But they can't. They can't face the reality. But Paul has no problem facing the reality because he knows that his acceptance, his security doesn't depend upon his performance. When he was a Jew, he persecuted those he disagreed with Christians with a passion. Paul the Christian persecuted no one. He knows that he is saved by grace. He knows his own shortcomings, but he knows the forgiveness that is his in Christ. Shape. The life that has purpose and meaning, knowing what actually has lasting value. Knowing that we have a Lord, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, who has trumped death and with him we will also gives lasting meaning and significance to our lives that nothing else can give absolutely nothing so paul says at the end of this chapter he says 
My dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not empty. It will stand. It will stand. We have lives and we have the capacity to live lives as we live laboring in the Lord. Could preach a whole series of sermons on that phrase. But as we live Godward in our work, in our life, as we serve him and pursue his purposes, it will stand in eternity. What does that mean? Well, it means that some of you should do what I've done, what Colin's done, what Mark's doing, what others are considering. And you leave behind secular work and you go and take up full-time vocational ministry. It means that when Colin raises the flag for church plant down south, that you say, that's going to be tough, but I'm in. Because I know that I can do some labor there that will bear fruit, bringing men and women, boys and girls into eternity with me in Christ. But it means for all of us in our homes, in our uni, in our TAFE, in our schools, in our offices, wherever we find ourselves, we are ambassadors for Christ. And that is not motivated out of guilt or out of duty. What's Paul saying? He worked harder than all of them in verse 10, but not I, but the grace of God that was with me, the grace of God that empowers and motivates. You've been loved so much. Serve him. So what do you build on? Who do you build on? Can it take the weight? For those of us who say our faith is in Christ, have a look at your foundations. Go back to those questions I asked you at the start. Is that where you are building each and every day? Or do we kind of have Jesus and we're trying to do it over here? Well, just realize how empty that is and how it's destined to fail. Live daily in the grace of the gospel. Hold the facts, the facts that Paul gave us of the first importance. But this morning, if you're not a Christian, have a long look at your foundation. It may look secure now, but can it stand? Will it stand? Will you ever know that it is enough? Can it conquer death? The invitation is there to accept Christ's offer of the foundation achieved through his death and resurrection, to take hold firmly the good news that we celebrate this Easter, to receive it by faith as a free gift. If you want to take that up, come and chat to me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you about that. If you've got more questions, come along after Easter as Colin runs us through in the evening church uh, through the Life Series. Come along for four weeks. Maybe you know people that you can invite. Come along. Check out that foundation and know that Christ and on him we will stand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have delivered us from the striving to to try and achieve our own answers to those questions. We know that they could never, they could never do it. They could never achieve anything. And no matter how firm they look, 
they will always crumble. But Father, we thank you through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We have a foundation that can never be shaken. By your spirit, plant our feet so firmly into that grace that is ours in Christ, that we may never, never fail here and into eternity. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.